We started back in January in Matthew 10. Well, we've been working through Matthew for about a year because we're working verse by verse through it, and we take pretty good-sized passages, but we started this particular semester in Matthew 10. Matthew 10 is on discipleship. It's really the cost of discipleship, and unfortunately, in the culture in which we live, the, the message of the cross and what Jesus gave in Matthew 10 is put on the backstage of a lot of churches. In, in fact, a lot of outreaches, it's on the backstage. People want to talk about everything good that Christ does without telling people up front the cost that's involved. And Jesus was always, you know, communicating truth to people. And when he communicated to the masses, he didn't hold back from talking about the cost. He said, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Well, the cross was an instrument of execution. That would have been shocking for people to hear. I mean, it would be like us hearing, hey, if you really want to follow Jesus, you better embrace the electric chair. I mean, for us to hear that would go, whoa, I don't know if I really want to be a part of that. But that's not what we hear. But that was the message of Matthew 10 and that you're going to be persecuted. You're going to suffer. And when you give that message on the front end, it tends to weed out a lot of what we call the stony ground, a lot of the thorny soil people, a lot of them. It weeds out because they don't like that message. And, and so we move from chapter 10 where that was the message. In fact, at the end of chapter 10, he said, if you are ashamed of me, I'm going to be ashamed of you in front of the Father. That's what he says at the end of chapter 10. But then in chapter 11 and 12, we see the responses of people to this evidence that Matthew has laid out in chapters 1 through 10. He lays out all kind of evidence that Jesus was Messiah. He was the promised one. Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than any other gospel writer trying to communicate to the Jewish listeners that Jesus was the one that they were looking for. But if you remember at the beginning of chapter 11, John the Baptist is in prison. And he's scratching his head and he's going, wait a minute, this is not looking like I thought it was going to look. I, I mean, I, I thought Jesus was, the Messiah was going to come and he was going to set everything right. The Jewish people were going to rule again. Rome was going to be kicked out. Herod, the evil, immoral guy we looked at last week, was going to be dethroned. And a good, righteous king, the Messiah, was going to be ruling. And that wasn't what, what, what was happening at all. And so John's scratching his head going, man, did, did I miss something? Is it, you know, am I off here? Do you ever feel that way in your spiritual life? I mean, you're following Jesus and you think everything's going right, and then all of a sudden, whoa. It may not be a prison like John the Baptist, but the circumstances you find yourself in, you're going, am I missing something, God? Am I not hearing you right on this? I've been there many times in my life. And as I, as I go through those times, I'm constantly reminded where I need to go. And it's again reminded to us in chapter 11 when those disciples go to Jesus to find out if He is the one. And He says, go back to John and tell him what you see and what you hear. What you see and what you hear. You know, what you hear from me, my word. In other words, God's word and the faith experience. And, and so then after that, we see these other examples these, these responses of people really attributing Jesus' works to Satan, blasphemy. And, and that was a very specific sin to that point. And what it was is, as those people attributed 
Jesus Christ and what he was doing to Satan, they were rejecting the only one that could rescue them. And that's why it was unforgivable. They were rejecting his provision for them. And so we saw that response and we saw other responses in 11 and 12 of where people, they just either, they didn't get it. But his disciples were staying with him. And we know from John chapter 6, when Jesus gave the hard teaching after what we're going to look at today, there were people that, that left. And he turns to his disciples and said, are you going to leave? And they said, Lord, where are we going to go? You alone have the words of life. And so the true disciples are the good soil like we looked at in Matthew 13 where there's four soils, two types of hearers. There's a worldly hearer and then there's a supernatural hearer. A person that the Spirit has actually opened your eyes and opened your ears to hear and eyes to see so that you respond to the gospel positively and it's supernaturally driven. It's not a humanistic effort at all. In fact, the first three hearers are all on their own. You got the, the person that just outright rejects, they hear it, but they don't care. Then you've got the stony ground, that's the person that receives it with joy. They hear that front stage message that's very popular in our culture about how awesome Jesus is. He's going to make your life great, He's going to change your life for the better, everything's going to work out perfect for you. But then when tribulation, persecution, and temptation comes into their life, they, they leave Him because they never really were of Him. They didn't have that supernatural root. There was no root in Christ. It was all just an effort. And the same with a thorny soil. This is a calculating person and they go, you know what? I, I want Jesus because I want to make sure that if this heaven thing's for real and hell's for real, I just want to make sure I get the X in the block. But they don't really see a need. Jesus is telling the crowd, listen, there's going to be different types of responses. And if you remember, I used the example. I have a daughter that had a heart transplant three years ago. They took her heart out and put another heart in. And that was not an option for her. She had one option, and that was to get a new heart. Really, for us, that's the only option. We don't have an option. Jesus is not an add-on to our life. And unfortunately, in our culture, that's kind of the way he's been treated. And, and then he goes into the parable of the counterfeit wheat. And then he goes into the parable of the, the treasure, saying it's worth selling everything for. And then he goes to the dragnet. There's good fish and bad fish. And then he uh, goes into the fact that the people in Nazareth where he goes back to where he started, reject him again. And then we see a picture of that last week with Herod and John the Baptist. Herod representing the world. John the Baptist re representing Christ and believers. Those are the two worldviews. And we saw how it ended up for John the Baptist. He lost his head here, but he gained everything. Herod thought he had everything here, but really had nothing because he perished. His world fell apart. He, 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 here's what's so bad about Herod when you stop and think about it. In Luke 23, Herod is standing before, or Jesus is standing before Herod. And, and Herod asked him to do something, and Jesus is quiet. And I was really struck by that. I was sharing with Brad the other day how how struck I was that Jesus Christ, God of all creation, come to give His life. He didn't come to judge the world. He did not come to condemn the world. We know that from Scripture. But He's standing in front of Herod, and when He has an opportunity, He doesn't beg Herod. He doesn't say anything to Herod. He's quiet. doesn't plead with Him. He just sits there quiet. And that is, when God rejects you, He's quiet. 
and you don't know, you don't hear. And you go, why does God reject? Because when you reject God so much, there's a thing called judicial blindness that sets in where God rejects you. And we see that from Isaiah. It's scriptural. We see it in Scripture. And it's mentioned in John chapter 12 where they quote Isaiah, where even though you have eyes, you can't see. You have ears, but you can't hear. Why? Because God's rejected you because you've rejected Him. And so that was the end of 14, 1 through 12. We looked at that picture of Herod and John the Baptist. And today, we go into two of the, probably the most told stories of the Bible. The fish and the loaves. You know, the miracle of feeding the 5,000. Everybody in here has heard that story at least 20 times probably. Maybe you haven't. But if you grew up in any kind of church environment, you probably did. And then the other story is Peter walking on the water. Those were probably the two stories I heard most growing up. And I was just looking at them, and really, here's the thing. There's nothing new there. It's just two simple truths illustrated in these stories that God calls us first to a faith that is tested. He calls us to a faith that's going to be tested our entire life. And and we see that through that story of the feeding of the 5,000. We think of it as just God's provision, but there was something going on there with the disciples. It was a teaching opportunity. You've got to remember, Jesus was primarily focused on 12 men that he was building into. Not the crowds, the 12 men. And that was a test. Why? Because what had happened prior to that moment? Well, let's see. He raised somebody from the dead. He calmed a storm when they were out at sea and they thought they were going to die. He caused the blind to see. He healed the lame. He turned water into wine. He had done all these things. And they're in a big field because they were withdrawing because they'd been told that Herod had killed John the Baptist and they were walking away to a desolate place and the crowd didn't want him to be desolate. The crowd didn't want him to get away. The crowd had heard what he had done. The crowd wanted more miracles. So what does Jesus do? He's compassionate. He sees these people like a sheep without a shepherd and so he starts healing them. And he starts at the beginning of the day and he's healing and healing. And guess what? More people are coming. By the time it gets toward the latter part of the day, there's 5,000 men there with their families. Somewhere an estimate of between fifteen and 25,000 people on this hillside. That's a lot of people. I mean, as good, I've said this before, as good as Chick-fil-A is, man, I don't think they can muster feeding 25,000 people on the spur of the moment like that. And they were in a desolate place. So it wasn't like they had a Winn-Dixie or a Kroger or a Publix down there that they could pop off to and get a bunch of food. And so the disciples are seeing this and they're recognizing that there's something going on. And so that's that first story. But then on the heels of Jesus feeding all those people, he sends his disciples out in the water. And they go into the water and they can't get across the Sea of Galilee. Now I've been on the Sea of Galilee so have you, Amos. You've been there with me and Chuck. Y'all have been over there. They were trying to get from one place to another and they couldn't get across because of the wind. And it might have been a little stormy out there, but it wasn't like a fierce storm, but it was keeping them from getting to where they needed to be. And so Jesus just walks along the water. And, it, and it's kind of comical in another uh, account of it. It says he was going to pass them by. I just think that's funny that he's just going to walk by him <laughs> on the water. That's what it says in the scriptures. It says he was going to pass him by. 
And they saw him and they thought it was a ghost and they cried out. And he said, it's me. And Peter said, if it's you, say come. And so he comes and so that's that story. The principle from there is that our faith has to be focused on Jesus. So God calls us to a faith that's going to be tested by Jesus, but he also calls us to a faith that has to be focused on Jesus. So often we allow other things to distract our, uh, our vision from Jesus. And we're going to look at that. So let's read the passage in, in starting in 14 down in verse 13. And as we read it, we're going to read all the way through the end of the chapter and try to get through that today. Thinking about those two principles, that God calls us to a faith that's tested by Jesus and a faith that's focused on Jesus. So starting in verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there. When he heard what? He heard that John the Baptist was dead in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. Now when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Now when he ordered the crowd to sit down on the grass, he, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and they were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides the women and children. Now immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, that's between 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and he came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to seek. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent word around to all that region. They brought to him all who were sick, and they implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it, they were made well. Where do you think they got that idea to just touch the hem of his garment, by the way? From the woman who was bleeding. Yeah, we read about that earlier, right? She had already been healed. Do you think word didn't travel? You think there was a reason all those people were flocking to him? 
And so if you'll turn over to Mark chapter 6, I want you to, uh, just the feeding of the 5,000 part, We're gonna, I want to read a couple of, uh, of the other passages about that real quick, just so you hear just another viewpoint of the same story. And um, in Mark 6, verse 34, it says, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them? In other words, what they were saying is they, they had about 200 denarii probably in their money pouch. And that's about 200 days wages. But the way they phrased the question was like, this ain't enough money to take care of all these people. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And they had found out and they said five loaves and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. Now, when's the last time you saw a color in Scripture? How often do you see colors in Scripture, guys? Not very often, do you? And so when you see a color, it's kind of like last week. We, we heard the word birthday. It's only twice in all of Scripture. That's a speed break. When you see a color... There's a reason. There's a, there's a point being made. Now, I just read from that account, and it said they were like sheep without a shepherd. Is there another passage of Scripture where you remember in the whole Bible where there's a color mentioned? Yeah. You think the writer's trying to communicate this is the good shepherd. This is the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And you remember what it said about the Lord being the shepherd? Would the people that, is talk, that, that they're talking about in Psalm 23 ever have to worry about what they're going to eat? No. Why? Because they're going to have plenty of food. They're, they're going to eat in the presence of their enemies. That, that means the, the food's bountiful. They're, they're not going to have to be insecure. They, get, they can trust in the shepherd, and that writer's taken back. Last one is John chapter 6, and we covered this a few years ago when we were in John, but I want to point out this one thing. When, um, when it says in John 6, he tells Philip, right, uh, the Passover, starting in verse 4, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand, now, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip. So Jesus turns to Philip and he says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, first of all, you need to understand that most of the time when rabbis taught, it was the people's responsibility to go get their own food. And it was also the people's responsibility to bring food or something for the rabbi to take care of himself. That was the culture. So when Jesus turns to Philip, Philip's going, whoa, wait, this is a lot of people here. We, they're, they're supposed to be taking care of us. And, and so now he's turning saying, no, he's the host. Jesus is the host. The people aren't 
the ones responsible. I'm taking care of them. So he turns to Philip and asks him, and it says, here it is, verse 6, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. He's talking about Jesus. Are, are you at a place in your life where you're struggling with anything? And you think, why is God doing this? Or is, this is impossible? I've gotten so much comfort out of that little phrase. He said this to test him. You see, going through the Marine Corps, when, when, when I got into the Marine Corps, there was a screening process. When you get in, they make you run. It's changed now, but it used to be you run three miles, you do a bunch of sit-ups, and you do uh, pull-ups. You had to do a certain amount. And if you couldn't do those, it reflected weakness in your body and their mind so that you couldn't do the task that you needed to do. So it pointed out the flaws. Just like when you're in school and you take a test, what's the purpose of a test? It's to show where you're weak in an area of knowledge so that you can overcome that. So our whole life in the spiritual realm is a series of tests. It's just Jesus testing us throughout our entire life. When we come to faith, a lot of times we think those tests should be behind us. But you never get there. Why? Like Paul says in Romans 7, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I, I want to do, I don't do. Woe is me. Why? Because I'm, I'm, this whole life we're being conformed to the image. And our life is this series of opportunities for us to grow in maturity and depth. And show me somebody that's never been tested, and I'll show you somebody very superficial. They got the answers for everything. And you know a perfect example? Talk to somebody who's newly married who has all the answers about how to raise kids. How flat does that fall on your ears if you've had kids, right? It cracks me up. People have just been married writing blogs on how to raise kids. They've never raised kids in their whole life, and they're writing a whole blog for all their friends to see how much wisdom they've gained from all these other people. But it's a different thing when you walk through it yourself. I mean, everybody can tell you about this, but until you live it out and you see and you realize, wow, I don't know what I think I know. And, and it's, it just, <laughs> it's getting worse. Because everybody can be an expert. Anybody can go on Google and find out information and go and start writing because they have an opinion. But if you're not tested, you're not very deep. I mean, if you go, I mean, to me, if I'm going to talk to somebody for wisdom, I want to talk to the guy who's been bankrupt, who's had to walk through bankruptcy, who's had to walk through difficult times in his life. When I was going through a difficult time, Financially, years ago, I remember going to this guy who it was, he had a $60 million debt that he couldn't pay. Personal debt. He used his personal money and went in debt $60 million. And I remember sitting in his office because my debt was 60000 which was insurmountable to me at that time. And I'm sitting there talking to him, and he was so calm. He said, You know what, Doug? That was, you know, I'm, I've, pass through that valley you will get through it but let me tell you some things you can do and I you think I listened to him absolutely I listened to him because he's walked through it there's a depth there that comes across when you are tested and you walk through it and and so 
this test that Jesus is giving them is kind of ironic to me that he's given, not ironic, it's just funny that he's given a test. They've already seen him do all these things. They've already had tests. They were out in the boat. He's asleep. Do you think that was a test? I think it was a test too. He's asleep in the boat and they're panicking because a storm's coming. Jesus, don't you care? And he wakes up and he rebukes them. Hey, I'm here in the boat with you. Don't you trust me? And, and so there's some verses I want to give you that you can jot down real quick. Deuteronomy 8, 2. These all have to do with testing. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Deuteronomy 8, 2. So he tests us at times to see if we're going to keep his commandments or not. First Chronicles 29.17 Since I know, O oh my God, that you try the heart, or test the heart, and delight in uprightness, I, in the integrity of my heart, have willingly offered all these things, so now with joy I've seen your people who are present here making their offerings willing to you. He tests our heart constantly we are put in positions that test our faith psalm 66 10 for you have tried us O god you have refined us as silver is refined you know how silver is refined put it in a fire and what happens when you heat it up what happens to the impurities you want to see somebody's impurities you put them in a fire man you guys identify you get stressed, do those impurities come out of your mouth? Out of your heart? It does with me. I get stressed. Yeah, I know, Roger. It's a big shock, isn't it? But it's true. Again, going back to the Marine Corps, they used to put us, they had this thing called the crucible. And we'd go through and we'd have to go through this training and it was problem solving, but they put all these extra stressors on you. First of all, you got the stress of time. But then you've got some guy yelling in your ear over here that if you mess it up, you're out. And they're doing that to see how you respond under stress because that surfaces. And you get some people, they just fold. They don't know what to do. And, and so for us as believers, as God takes us through the fire, it, it surfaces those impurities so we can deal with them. It's not that they make you unqualified to be a believer. It's what they do, oh, is it helps you to understand these are areas of weakness. This is where I need accountability. This is why I need guys around me to help me. We all need that. Isaiah 48.10 says, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm bringing affliction into your life to surface those spiritual impurities that are there. Zechariah 13.9 And I will bring the third part through the fire. This, he's talking about a remnant. Refine them as silver is refined. And I will test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, these are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. You know what the most awesome thing about going through a test is with God? Once you get through it, you say, this is my God. 
I look at a guy like John Munger, who I mentioned a lot for you, you guys. He's a guy who's a persecuted pastor. He's in prison for 18 months. Can you imagine, any of you guys in here, imagine you come to Christ and a year later you're thrown into jail for simply trusting and preaching or talking about Jesus. Think about that fire, what that does to you at that moment. So early, it's a gift. And we don't see those fires as gifts necessarily, but they're a gift. It deepens you. And if any of you have spent any time around John Monger, you know what I'm talking about. The man's full of joy. He's full of a depth. His faith is real too. It's real as can be. It's real as can be. And so 1 Corinthians 3.13, Paul says, Every man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. James 1 says, James 1.3, knowing that the testing of our faith produces what? Endurance. How many guys in this room have gone through a fire in the last five years? Okay. And how many guys has God brought you through that fire? Okay. How many guys have gone through more than one fire in the last five years? You see all the hands popping up? God keeps doing it and bringing us through. And yet, when we go through a fire again, what do we do? Where does our sights go? Why, why do we doubt Him when we... Because maybe this time He won't come through. Maybe this time... Or, or maybe I'm not hearing Him. And, and I get that. Sometimes we, we wonder if we're hearing Him right. But is God faithful? Yes, He's faithful. Is He faithful to give you everything you want in life? No. You're not going to get everything you want in life. That's why it's so important for you to be in the Bible, reading His Word, knowing who He is, what His mission is, what His will and design is for your life so that you can become more in alignment with His plan for your life. Listen, when I was in the Marine Corps, and I keep referencing, but there's just a lot of good analogies. We had a book about this thick for the Harrier. I was a Harrier pilot in the Marine Corps, and I flew an AV-8B Harrier. There was a book like this called the NATOPS Manual. And it was the Naval Aviation Training Operations Manual for that airplane. It was put together by the people that designed the airplane to make sure that if you do what's in that book, you will be able to fly that plane effectively. And there were certain things that you could do and you couldn't do. There were a lot of guys who violated that Bible, that Natops Bible, and they died. There was a great consequence. You cannot just do what you want in this world and get away without consequences. Contrary to what people tell you. And so it's so important for us to read this. Guys, I'm, I did not have that kind of understanding for many, many years into my Christian walk. I just thought this was, yeah, it told me about Jesus, but once I knew about Jesus, I was good. And I didn't really spend a lot of time understanding how I was supposed to function in relationship with God and how I was supposed to function in relationship with Jesus. And I certainly didn't understand that I was supposed to keep my eyes on Him all the time. I just thought I was one and done. Man, I believed and He died on the cross and I'm going to heaven. That's all I needed. And He tested my faith. And He tested my faith. And as He tested, 
he ends up revealing flaws. Yeah. The first, he said this to test them. Where, where, where was it? That was in John 6. In John 6, he said, he said this to test Philip in John 6, 4. But here's the thing. So if we know that our life is a series of, of opportunities to grow a test, to grow us, what do we do in response to those tests? Well, first thing is we bring what we have to Jesus, just like they did. He's not asking you to bring more than you have, more than there. You bring what you have to Jesus. That's the first thing you do. The second thing is we trust Him. We trust Him with the results. We don't try to manipulate. We don't try to control the results. We trust Him. We bring Him the stuff, whatever we have, for whatever we think He wants us to do, and then we trust Him with the results. And then the third thing is that trust is demonstrated by obedience. How is it that we always try to figure out a way to try to get out what God wants us to do? It's like when my dad would tell me to do something. I would always try to act like I didn't understand so that I wouldn't have to do it. And we do that all the time. But if we trust Him, we'll obey Him. Now here's the thing. Matthew's writing this, and, he, and there's a, uh, an example over in uh, 2 Kings chapter, 20, or chapter 4, verses 42 to 44, where um, Elisha has bread brought to him by a guy, and he's got to feed a hundred guys. And when he says, give it to the hundred guys, the guy says, hey, that ain't enough to feed them. And it's the same thing. Now, every Jew would have known that story. And so what Matthew's doing is saying, Jesus is greater than Elisha. This isn't a hundred people. This is 5,000 men and their families. This is Messiah. This is the great shepherd. He's the one we can trust. And on the heels of that, then he says, immediately, he did not want to be a popular king. And we know why, because over in John chapter 6, it says, they wanted to make him king because he fed them. And Jesus himself said to them, you only want me because I put food in your belly. In other words, you just want me for what I can do for you in an earthly realm, not because you recognize your need for me. And so he goes and he, as he goes, he sends the disciples out by himself. This, isn't, this is another test. They didn't pass this test with the 5,000. Why? Because <laughs> he says, hey, feed them. And instead of them saying, okay, Jesus, tell us what to do. We know you can do this. What did they do? They made excuses why they couldn't. We do it all the time. Hey, we got this kingdom opportunity down here you, you, you can be a part of. Oh, I'm sorry. I just don't have the time. I'm already invested in all this other stuff, man. All these other things. When God's got all these opportunities around us and we sit every day, and guys, I'm just going to tell you, look at your calendar, look at your checkbook, look at what you're involved in, and, and, and say, God, I want to be serving you. I want to be doing the things for you. doesn't mean that you have to be a preacher and a missionary. Like I said, Bud Toole, who's normally in here, he's a guy who uses kingdom resources and does kingdom stuff all the time. And he's been on Wall Street for, what, 40 years, 50 years or longer? He's been there a long time. So he sends them out on the boat, and they're out on the boat, 
and they can't get anywhere. And so he goes, I'm going to go out there. And the thing about the sea, the Sea of Galilee was at night, it was considered dangerous and deadly. The fishermen did not like being out there at night. They didn't like being out on the water. They viewed the water as kind of a, a deadly thing, an evil thing, and storms would pop up quick. And so what does Jesus do? He's walking on the water. He's walking on the evil as he walks out there to them, showing he's over everything. And he's just going to walk on by. And they say, hey, it's a ghost. And he says, no, it's me. And what's interesting, when he says, take heart, it is I, that really is the same thing in the original language. Is almost like him saying, it is I am. From the Old Testament, remember that? Tell him I am sent you. And Peter said, Lord, if that is you, command me to come. And Peter gets out and he jumps out and he's walking on water. Now, what's amazing is, you know, a lot of people look at this as a rebuke when it says, you know, oh, you of little faith. I think it would have been a rebuke if he said, oh, you of no faith. But he said, oh, you of little faith. You know what he's saying there? Peter, you almost had it. You were, you were there. You were walking on the water with me and you took your eyes off of me. And that's why our focus has to be on Jesus. When life circumstances overwhelm us, guys, where are we looking? I think of that, uh, that passage in 2 Chronicles. Uh, I think it's, it's Jehoshaphat, I think, if I'm not mistaken, who says, Lord, we don't know where to look, but our eyes are on you. They were surrounded by people that were coming. They wanted to destroy them. And he said, Lord, we don't know where to look, but our eyes are on you. And here's, here's the key part of the whole passage, guys, in verse 33. And those in the boat worshipped him. That word worship is the same word back in Matthew 2. Used for the Magi when they came to worship Jesus. It's the Greek word proskuneo. And it means to bow down and kiss the feet of. And as a Jew, you did not do that to anybody but God. And they did it to Jesus. Because he was God. They worshipped him. Only God. There's a passage in Hebrews I want to close with. In Hebrews chapter 12, which follows, you know, the faith chapter. It says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, every sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. I mean, guys, where are you looking? Why is it that he can provide for us one minute and less than a month later, you're going, gosh, we need help. You know, we forget about the fact that He just provided for us. It's almost like He's not going to come through. It's 12 years ago now. We, we were adopting our daughter, Ellie. And I brought this newsletter because this was a newsletter we sent out. It's dated May or March 21st, 2006. There's a picture of Ellie on it. 
And Ellie was a special needs child. She was missing one hand. She had some lung issues going on. And um, when you're on a special needs list, when you take somebody off that list, you have two weeks to secure the fact that you're going to adopt them. Then they put them back on there because they don't want them taken off too long because they're afraid they're not going to be adopted. So to secure the adoption, you have to make an additional adoption payment of $5,000. We didn't have. We didn't have it. But we had the heart to adopt her. So I called the lady and I put $200 on my credit card to do the application fee, trusting God to provide $5,000 in two weeks. Well, two weeks is almost gone by. It's 10 or 12 days had gone by. We have two days left before the deadline to get them $5,000. This is what my wife wrote. When two days remain before, there was only two days that remained before she would be placed back on the list for another's family consideration. Yet my faith remains strong. Doug and I met for lunch to discuss our options. We could take some money out of our small retirement account just to hold her, or we could trust that if God did not provide that she was not to be meant to be ours and we would let her go. Just then a friend from church passed our table and stopped to chat. She introduced us to her friend and also from our, that church, and we'd never met this lady. They asked about our daughter, Kate, and we told them about our hopes to adopt again, showed them the picture of this little girl we were praying about. They promised to pray with us on her behalf, and they left. Later that evening, my phone rang, and it was Lee, the woman that I had just met earlier that day. She had been touched by the story of this little girl. She said, how much money do you need to bring her home? And I don't remember much about the rest of the conversation as I was overwhelmed with tears at seeing the hand of God move on behalf of this little orphan girl half a mile, half a world away. Since that day, three months ago, the Lord has provided all the money we've needed. They paid for all of the adoption, $27,000. But here's the thing. We didn't know that. They told us when we first met with them, they wanted, they gave us that money, 5,000 right away. And they said, we want to pay for it all. But we were so excited about the 5,000. We didn't hear them say, we're going to take care of all of it. But they been, they did most of it along the way. And we had 10,000 left that we needed. And so in this newsletter that went out to everybody, it says, we still need the remaining $10,000 to travel, but are trusting God to provide that in a, the same miraculous way. Well, when her husband got this newsletter, he called. He said, hey, we told you we're covering everything. You don't need $10,000. What are you praying about something God's already provided? And I said, what? He, he goes, did you not hear? I said, no, I didn't, I didn't catch that. He goes, yeah, we told you everything. Everything's covered. Now, see, we lived for two months not knowing everything was covered. Guys, we live most of our days as if God does not have the resources to take care of everything we need. He's covered whatever we need to do whatever He wants us to do. Everything. He's able. So as God takes you through testing, where's our focus? Where are we looking? Are we looking to Jesus? Or are we looking at our circumstances? You've, you've got to keep your focus on Him. So two things. Know that you're, you're going to be tested. And know that you need to keep your focus on Him. And you go, how do I do that? If I keep, I keep going off, you ask Him, God, help me. 
Help me to keep my focus on Jesus and then be obedient to Him. Um, Let's pray.